And we are off, my goons. Welcome to an, the first official episode of Ivre Distre, where our motto is our name, live and learn. That's what it's all about. That's our goal. So with that spirit in mind, today we'll be exploring a topic that is very near and dear to all of our hearts as Catholics, and that would be the Holy Eucharist. Is this central doctrine of our faith biblical? And what does the early church have to say about this? Now, there are varying opinions and doctrines on the Most Holy Eucharist that have come up since the Protestant Reformation. And it is important and quintessential to our faith that we understand this doctrine ourselves as Catholics and have a valid argument for it. Now, before we jump into that, let's go ahead and start and open this up with prayer. And I believe that we can open this up with a prayer to our God and Almighty Father in Heaven with a Pater Noster. And as we begin all beautiful prayers, in nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritu Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, quies in celis, sancti viceter nomen tuum, adveniant renum tuum, fiat voluntas tua sicut in cielo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis orie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicur et nos dimitimus debituibus nostris, et ne nos inducas inditationem, se libra nos amalo. Amen. Sancte familia Jesu Maria et Iel, Iosef, or orate pro nobis, Sancte Agostine, or pro nobis, in nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. So at the end there, that's just us bringing in the Holy Family, asking them to pray for us, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and St. Augustine, who I guess we can go ahead and officially declare him as the patron saint of Ivre Distre. After all, I don't know if you will notice, but in the picture that we have of St. Augustine up on um, Vivre Distre's main site, the light that is shining down on St. Augustine says Veritas. It's truth, right? Uh, so, and that's that's what we're all about here, is getting to the truth, living and learning in order to get there. So as we already said, the, today's topic is going to be on the Holy Eucharist, and we're going to be diving into the scriptural um, aspect of the Holy Eucharist, as well as looking and examining a few quotes from the early church to glean from them the perspective of this doctrine um, closer to its inception. So if you all have your Bibles with you, we'll be opening up to the Gospel of John. It'll be chapter 6, and it'll be verse, we'll start at verse 47. I think that's a good place to start. Um, so this section is rightfully called the Bread of Life Discourse. At this point, Jesus is making another one of his I am statements. Um, he is saying, I am the bread of life. And the word discourse is in there because a lot of people ended up leaving him because of this teaching. Now, before I spoil it all, <laughs> let's just go ahead and dive right into verse 47. And this is our Lord speaking. And he says, Amen, Amen, I say unto you, he that believeth in me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the desert and are dead. 
This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, and that if any man eat of it, he may not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give you is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, abideth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, the same also shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things he said, teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, hearing it, said, The saying is hard, and who can hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this, said to them, Doth this scandalize you? <laughs> I think that's a good place for us to stop. I think that's a, it's a, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very um, tantalizing place to stop. Doth this scandalize you? I think it's a, it's a testament to all of the really, in the perspective of people that are listening, crazy things that our Lord has said, all the mystical things, all the powerful things that he has said, this one has really struck a nerve. You've got all of these people following our Lord. You've got crowds upon crowds of Jews, you know, even the Pharisees are listening in the background, and so many disciples, and of course you've got the twelve apostles that are there. And they're just like, who, who can hear this teaching? Now let's backtrack a little bit. Let's look and examine verses 47 through 52. I think in order to analyze this part of scripture, it's, it's necessary for us to just go ahead and accept one very crucial fact. Scripture was not initially written in English. <laughs> there was another language that it was written in, and in this particular gospel, it was Koine Greek. Now, one thing to point out, in the Greek scriptures, in the Greek translation of this gospel, from verse 47 through 52, whenever our Lord is saying, eat, 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 eat this, eat of this bread, or eat my flesh, he's using the Greek word phago from the root word phagos, and it's a more common word for eat, one that you would use every day. You know, like, I eat this bread, or, you know, I, I, I eat this apple, or it's just something that you, you would use more commonly. Now, after verse 53, where it says, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Our Lord, instead of toning it down, decides to turn, turn, turn it all the way up. So from verse 54 all the way down to 59, whenever he says, eat the flesh of the Son of Man, when you eateth my flesh, eh, eat my flesh, it is bread, he is 
no longer using the word phagos or phago. He's using a completely different word. It's trogon, trogon, trogo. You must trogo my flesh. Uh, it also has the context of eating, but a completely different translation. The direct translation of trogon is to bite, to chew, to gnaw, to, um, oh, let's pull out a fancy word, to, to masticate, you know, freaking, uh, it, it means to, to just chew, and not like an animal would, like how a cow would eat hay. Um, it's very descriptive, very, very off-putting, something, it's not used often in the Gospels at all, in the Koine scriptures, or Koine Greek scriptures. It has six total occurrences in all of scripture. And here we see, I believe it's five of them. And the sixth one actually comes later in the Gospel of John when this, the bread of life discourse is being quoted by the author. Uh, and again, it starts at verse 54 and goes all the way down to verse 59. And this is why people get in even more of an uproar. You know, at first they're just like, you know, how is this man going to give us his flesh to eat? You know, they're, um, our Lord is saying, I am the bread of life. You know, these people have heard these things before, you know, I am the gate, I am the true vine, all these different things, yada, 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 a whole bunch of I am statements. But this one, he really turns up the heat on it <laughs> by using this word, trogon, trogo, trogo, trogo. Um, and it gets to the point where they are saying, many therefore of his disciples hearing it said, this saying is hard and who can hear it? Now, if you look all the way at Verse 67, it says, After this, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And I, I love it because this is where um, Apostle Peter, our first pope's confession of faith, comes in. Verse 68, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have known that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> so in this confession of faith, you know, maybe Simon Peter didn't really understand this, this whole new mystery that was being explained and taught to them. Uh, he, maybe he didn't know the full depth of the Eucharist, especially since it wasn't instituted at this point. It wouldn't happen until Monday Thursday, the night of his betrayal. But he was just like, Lord, you know, it's coming from your mouth. You are truth itself. I will accept this as truth. Where else can we go to be fed, um, to be, to be fed the words of eternal life? I think that's so, so beautiful. It's because it's not, it's not blind faith. It's Peter realizing that he may not understand what our Lord is saying in this teaching, but he's ready to accept it. Because it's coming from the word of, from the words of the incarnate truth, the incarnate word, the Son of God Himself. If He's saying it, then it can't be false. He's putting his full trust in the Lord, and it profited him a lot. I mean, he, he did become the first pope. You know, the whole church um, instituted upon him as steward. Um, another occurrence of the Eucharist that I want to look at in Scripture is in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Way, 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 way up here. Chapter 11 
And we'll start at verse 23. Yeah, verse 23. And it says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and giving thanks broke and said, Take ye and eat. This is my body, which shall be delivered for you. This do for the commemoration of me. In like manner also the chalice, after he had supped, saying, This chalice is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you shall drink for the commemoration of me. For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink the chalice, you shall show the death of the Lord until he come. Therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread or drink the chalice of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the chalice. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. Therefore are there many infirm and weak among you, and many sleep. So this last verse, this verse 30, so it says, and many sleep. I've seen this translated in a variety of different ways. Um, in this version, the Dwight Rhymes Bible, it says sleep. I've seen in versions where they translate this as, as dying, as uh, passing away. And so I think it's important to realize that if people are really um, becoming infirm and weak and, and dying from having received um, the Eucharist, how can it possibly be symbolic or metaphorical? There is some mystical element behind it. And if we don't all uh, immediately agree on transubstantiation, we must, from just this passage alone, understand that there is a mystical element behind the Eucharist. Now, of course, as Catholics, we affirm the doctrine of transubstantiation as taught by St. Thomas Aquinas. But looking at it purely just from this passage alone, it's necessary to understand that the Eucharist is mystical, that there is an element of divinity to it, that there is something behind it. Um, and in this, in this particular context, um, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, what, this is, what he is addressing at this point is that the Corinthians have been very gluttonous at the Lord's Supper. They've, uh, there have been people who were eating far too much of the Eucharist and drinking far too much of the Eucharist, and there was very little to go around for their other bro brothers and sisters in Christ. People were forced to leave the Lord's Supper without having received our Lord at all. And so this is the context that Paul is describing, but it can be generally um, thought about as in, in any case where you're receiving the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord unworthily, you will still be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Because in order to discern our Lord in the Eucharist, to truly know that he is present, is to understand that you must be spiritually fit, you must be spiritually ready in order to receive this Holy of Holies, this blessed sacrament which is being offered up for you. Um, in order for him to receive you and you to receive him in this holy sacrament, your soul must be ready. It must be spiritually alive, which is what happens to us in the sacrament of baptism. We are regenerated into new life and brought 
into the kingdom of God, and our soul is made alive because it is born spiritually dead because of original sin. Now, of course, after baptism, when you commit a mortal sin, you are once again killing your soul. Your soul becomes spiritually dead. And thanks be to God for the sacrament of confession, because then you can run to confession, run to our Lord's divine mercy, and immerse yourself in it, and come out of the confessional alive, having been absolved of your sins. Um, but running to our Lord in the most holy Eucharist, when you when you have knowingly committed a sin that is mortal, you are not you are no longer spiritually worthy. You are at this point, beyond spiritually unclean, you are just entirely spiritually dead. It's necessary, in order to discern the Eucharist as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, to be mentally, physically, and spiritually prepared to receive our Lord. So now we've looked at the scriptural aspect of the Eucharist, and we can understand in the logistics of the whole situation, that this isn't a symbolic sacrament. It was never meant to be a metaphorical sacrament. It was never meant to just be a remembrance. It is a remembrance, of course. It's beyond remembrance. It's a commemoration. It is a reappearance, not a re-sacrifice, but a reappearance of the one and only sacrifice of our Lord on Calvary. So, with the scriptural aspect of this having been discussed and read, we will now move on to looking at what the early church has to say about our Lord's real presence in the Most Holy Eucharist. For the source of this, um, for, this for the source that I'll be using, it's called The Fathers Know Best, Your Essential Guide to the Teachings of the Early Church. And it's written by a very awesome theologian and apologian. Did I say that right? Apologian. I think that's I think that's a word that we can say. <laughs> um, it's written by a man named Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers. I think this is just an invaluable source um, on all sorts of tradition and uh, doctrine and dogma of the church. It really gives you a lot of insight into what the early church believed about all these different topics. Now, opening this up, the first source that we get is from St. Ignatius of Antioch. And this is from his letter to the Romans, written in 110 Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And it says, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David. And for drink I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. It's a very poetic way of looking at the Eucharist. And I've seen people look at this quote, and they just call it, you know, a, a symbolic and, and metaphorical um, quotation, because he's still referring to it as the bread of God. Um, he, he's still calling it the bread of God. He's not just calling it the, you know, the Eucharist. But he goes on to say, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David. And for drink, I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. It's a very real and poetic look at the Eucharist. Because at this point, not only did they not have the doctrine of transubstantiation, um, but they, they, they looked at the Eucharist as a mystery. They understood it to be the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. But they had to accept it as a mystery. Something that was true because the truth himself said it. 
they didn't understand it completely, and that was okay with them. So their way of looking at the Eucharist was, or, or describing the Eucharist, was through methods of poetry in, in a certain way, theological poetry. All right, moving on to um, still at St. Ignatius of Antioch. It's his letter to the Smyrnaeans, uh, also written in 110 AD. He says, Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which have come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh that suffered for our sins and that the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. End of quote. So I've read that this is an address towards um, the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism? Gnosticism. So... To generalize, it's Gnosticism's opinion or, or beliefs towards the Eucharist and, and the Incarnation. They believe that we are spiritual beings and we are trapped in flesh. That we are not a marriage of flesh and spirit, but that we are trapped in our flesh. And that we must be released by death in order to um, come into full communion with the divine. So... They, they believe that there was no way that God could become man because flesh is bad. Therefore, God cannot take on something that is bad because he is all good. So therefore, the Eucharist to them cannot be the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ because flesh would be bad. So that is why the, they were abstaining from the Eucharist and they refused to, to pray with the, with the early church because they rejected the Incarnation and thus rejected the doctrine of the Most Holy Eucharist. So the next, the next um, quote that we have is from St. Justin Martyr. This is written in 151 AD. It's his first apology. We call this food Eucharist, and no one else is permitted to partake of it except one who believes our teaching to be true, and who has been washed in the washing that is for the remission of sins and for regeneration, and is thereby living as Christ enjoined. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God, and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer, set down by him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured, is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. This is so powerful, because it's so very Catholic. <laughs> I mean, you got a Saint Justin Martyr who is saying things like Eucharistic prayer, and going right into calling it the, the flesh and blood of the incarnated Jesus. And he starts out, and I've seen people who've quoted Saint Justin Martyr and saying that this is also... Um, a symbolic and metaphorical um, phraseology of his, because he, he goes starts out by saying, for not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But they don't look into what he says afterwards, because he's saying that by the word of God, which would be the words of institution, which we find in the gospel, this, this what was once bread and wine is become the flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's so very Catholic. <laughs> I think this is as, as Catholic as you can get. 
uh, um, in in you know early church quotation concerning the Holy Eucharist. And we'll read mm, of one more saint, uh, Saint Irenaeus of Lyons, Lyons, Lyons. Okay, I'm just terrible at pronunciation today. <laughs> uh, and this is written in 189 Anno Domini, and it's from his letter against heresies. If the Lord were from other than the Father, how could he rightly take bread, which is of the same creation as our own, and confess it to be his body, and affirm that the mixture in the cup is his blood? The mixture in the cup that he's referring to is the mixture of wine and water, which this practice started very very early in the church, um, you know, uh, putting a little bit of water into the wine before consecration to symbolize the incarnate or to show the incarnation of our Lord. So he's saying that, you know, the bread starts out as merely being of creation. It is literally, you know, mashed up wheat um, and dough, depending on, you know, which, which side of the church you were on at this point. Um, and he takes it into his hand and makes it his body and blood. This, this is, he, he's going on to show how our Lord has the power to, to do such a thing. And in his next quote, it's from still the same letter against heresies. He says, He has declared the cup, a part of creation, to be his own blood, from which he causes our blood to flow. And the bread, a part of creation, he has established as his own body, from which he gives increase to our bodies. When the mixed cup and the baked bread receive the word of God and become the Eucharist, the body of Christ, and from these the substance of our flesh is increased and supported, how can they say that the flesh is not capable of receiving the gift of God, which is eternal life? Flesh that is nourished by the body and blood of the Lord and is in fact a member of him. Again, this is a bit of a, a nod towards the Gnostics um, and, and their their heterodox opinions on the flesh and the spirit um, and saying that there's no way that the flesh can receive the grace of God. There's no way that it can profit anything good because flesh is bad, spirit is good, we're trapped in flesh. He is saying that the Eucharist, the body and blood of our Lord, Prophet's grace for our flesh as well. It's not just spiritual sustenance, it's physical sustenance. It's all of the above. It feeds all of us. It feeds our body. It feeds our soul. And it heals us in both. So these are these are some of the early earlier quotes concerning the Eucharist. Now, there are some earlier quotes out there. Um, I don't know if you all have read any parts of the, the Didache, uh, it's rumored to have been written by, I, I don't know if they've actually confirmed this or not, but last I heard, it was rumored to have been written by the the disciples of the apostles. So the, the earliest is you can get to the apostles and, and you know, um, uh, outside of scripture concerning doctrine and, and early beliefs of the church. It also mentions the Eucharist, also mentions the, the institution and, and um, the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. I don't actually have the quote here in front of me, but I know that um, Catholic Answers, <laughs> one of the best sources for us who, who want to learn more about literally anything, has some of these quotations from the Didache up on their website. So 
Well, there we have it. I think if we can walk away from anything, the Eucharist, myth or mystical, mystical. There's no doubt about that. It's impossible to deny. Scripture affirms that there is a mystical reality to the Eucharist. And the early church most definitely believed that it was a mystical reality. Um, the sacrament itself contains and is the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to give a, just a quick little story concerning my um, exposure to the Eucharist because I grew up Protestant. Um, I remember one day I was going out for a drive and I was looking for a place to, to pray in quiet and away from people. And I remember a friend of mine had told me that the Catholic parish in our city always kept their doors unlocked. And I thought, you know, that is really unsafe. <laughs> That's not, there's probably a lot of expensive stuff in there. People might steal it. But, you know, um, and I guess it just kind of stayed in the back of my mind. But as I was out driving and looking for a place to go pray, I went to this church because I figured that nobody would be in there. And as I walked in to, I guess you could call it the Narthex, um, it was a very modern design church. I was looking around, and I was like, wow, this is actually really beautiful, really, really pretty, nice architecture, had a bit of a Hispanic element to it. And when I walked into the sanctuary, I was greeted at, like, right at the door, the baptismal, um, the baptismal font. And I could see all of the, I could see all of the woods because the walls were pretty much just windows. And I made my way over to the pew and I sat down. And I remember the first feeling that I felt was that there was someone there. And I recognized it to be God, but it felt completely different from what I'd felt before. It felt very solemn. It felt very powerful. It felt very unmovable, <laughs> if, if that's a good way of describing it. But I knew it was God. I, I recognized his presence, but this was much different and as I sat there, I was just overwhelmed by this presence. I prayed for what may have been an hour. And I left there. I left that Catholic parish just realizing that I had to learn more about the Catholic faith. I had to know why I felt the presence of God in this Catholic church more than I had felt anywhere else. Because, you know, I had sat in an, in an empty um, quote-unquote house of God before, uh, and it just felt like a, an empty place. Um, and, that, and that was all there was to it. I didn't feel the presence of God, and though I, I prayed in there. Um, but I sat about and I started researching the Catholic faith. Um, and I remember getting this phraseology, this terminology that was just alien to me. I kept getting the words, blessed sacrament, blessed sacrament, the Holy Eucharist. And I was like, okay, what in the world is this? You know, look up the blessed sacrament. And it starts giving me descriptions on the most Holy Eucharist. And I'm like, what exactly is the Holy Eucharist? And come to find out that the Holy Communion that Catholics were doing every Sunday at Mass meant something to them. And I, I was just blown away by that. And I, I was getting blown up with just quotes from the early church, uh, scriptural analytics of the Bread of Life discourse, and <clears throat> just areas where they were discussing the Eucharist in, in the Bible. I was blown away by it because I was just getting overwhelmed with this doctrine of the real presence. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's amazing. But I remember at one point the word tabernacle was mentioned. 
And I had to look up what that was because I had no idea what a tabernacle was other than what is mentioned in, uh, in Scripture. And it, you know, it said that was where they kept the, the unused hosts of the Eucharist after the end of Mass. And it was typically an, an ornate um, box that's kept at the front or at some area of the sanctuary where... Uh, where our Lord, our Lord would rest, and I remember thinking, that has to be it, because I was, as I was sitting in this pew, there was there was this copper box that was at the front of the sanctuary. I call it a copper box. It was a copper tabernacle sitting at the front of the sanctuary, and I, I, I didn't think of anything of it at the time, but as soon as I read that and made the connection between the Blessed Sacrament and the tabernacle, it clicked in my mind. I was like, well, that has to be it. That has to be the reason why I felt God in that sanctuary like I'd never felt anywhere else before. And at that moment when I realized the reality of the Most Holy Eucharist, I accepted one very life-changing statement, idea that popped into my mind. I had to be Catholic. Nowhere else would I find the real presence, as described by the early church and, and scripture, as I had been reading, than in the Catholic Church. And, you know, to make the story short, it would take four whole years of studying the faith <laughs> and, um, and eventually joining the military before I, I would even come into the Holy Catholic Church. And I must say that I am so pleased, and thanks be to God, that I made it into his Holy Church had I not been led into that church that day, I would likely be the same Protestant that I was, confused and unsure on matters of theology and scripture. But now I, I'm saved. I'm, I'm out of that bit of fog in my life. And thanks be to God for it. And I pray that the Eucharist blesses each and every one of you and that all of you were able to come to terms with this very real doctrine of the Holy Church. Because I, I assure you, when you go up to receive Holy Communion and the priest holds him up in front of you and says, the body of Christ, that what you're looking at right there is no longer bread. It is no longer wine. It is your Lord and Savior, his substance, his essence. It is our Lord. And when you respond, amen, amen, whatever, you are saying, so be it. I accept it. I accept that this is my Lord. This is the body of Christ. This is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of my Lord. Amen. So be it. Remember that this Sunday or if you go to daily Mass this week. That is your Lord, and he has waited for you for all of eternity, for the past 2,000 years since the institution of this most sacred mystery on Maundy Thursday. He's been waiting for you, for you to receive him. Thank you guys so much for listening. I know that this was this may have been a, a little bit of a long episode, but it's a very one that I'm very passionate about. I love the Eucharist. I love talking about the Eucharist. There's just so much to dive into it. 
uh, with. Um, and let's close out with a petition to Our Lady. We'll end with an Ave Maria. So we begin all beautiful prayers. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedita tui mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Sancte Familia Jesu Marie et Iosef, orate pro nobis. Sancte Augustine, ora pro nobis. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you so much, my goons, my brothers, my sisters. And if you want to reach out to me or you want to um, find a way to contact me, I am on Instagram um, as Salty Catholic Memes. Uh, kept the name. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to hearing from you um, and any feedback that you might have on this episode. I know that the audio may not have been very good. I was using a very, very downgraded mic. But I look forward to the ne ne next episode. And just let's live and learn together. Vivere at Easter. All right, my brothers and sisters, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.